0: no taxation without representation 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation no representation in the capital of this nation 200 years of exploitation
1: Give
0: the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the
1: district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. We may not have a vote, but we still have a voice, and in that regard, we have invited tonight a special guest, Catherine Schweitzer who's an attorney, a security consultant, and a retired special agent with the FBI. She she was tagged by the FBI to create their active shooter program after the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Since then, she has devoted her energy to helping prevent more tragedies. Her mission is to teach people their role in ending gun violence in their community. She's an adjunct professor at... um, um, DePaul University and I'm sorry she's a law professor at uh, DePaul University and I gotta add my daughter Trisha graduated from DePaul with the honor she would kill me if I didn't say that uh, and we're so happy to have you on the show tonight Catherine my co-host unfortunately had an emergency so she's not here but I look forward to a great conversation with you welcome and thanks for
0: coming. Oh, my gosh, Senator, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm happy to be sharing this information with your audience. I hope that I can help them uh, feel a little more empowered about uh, what they can and uh, do about uh, the gun violence that we face in the United States.
1: Well, you know, I hope you can, too, because I really, when, when, when we look at what happened in Uvalde, Texas, with all those children not only being killed, but let's be honest, being obliterated, Uh, by a maniac and those two teachers, that's the first thing I felt was a sense of helplessness. What can I, you know, what can we do? Uh, This seems so terrible. So let's start at what I see as the beginning. It all began, did it not, in 1966 at the University of Texas. I remember this. I was a young guy at the time. I was 13 years old, and I clearly remember the guy in the bell tower uh, with the automatic rifle, and uh, but it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a long period of time between that and the next mass shooting. What's changed in our society that now, instead of talking about this as some anomaly, we've already had 250 mass shootings this year? Is there something in our society that's changed?
0: Well, I think a lot has changed since 1966, and I think it's on two sides of the fence. Uh, I think that there's a lot that's changed in terms of uh, the uh, the way that police uh, respond, um, and and that has helped to uh, reduce the number of casualties. I know it doesn't seem like it, per, casualties per incident, uh, but then a lot of other things have 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 changed on the non-law enforcement side, including the uh, you know, uh, the the large volume of guns around in the United States, which just uh, the reality is we have a second amendment and uh, we have the right to purchase and carry guns in, in various ways. And so we have a lot more guns. And because of that, we have a lot more incidents. So though we've reduced the type of, um, we reduce reduced the number of casualties um, per shooting, we've increased the number of shootings exponentially. And that's very frustrating for everybody working in this area.
1: I bet. And, you know, it's, um, uh, I don't know if you have children, Catherine, but I raised three children. And, I mean, the Uvalde thing just uh, really hit me in the pit of the stomach. And and uh, do you have any idea why we get, we get upset about Columbine, we get upset about Sandy Cook, Parkland, uh, Uvalde Buffalo but the but our our righteous indignation seems to fade very quickly. What is that? That's and true. then and then yeah, we have right. another incident.
0: Yeah. Well so let me just give you some numbers. Let me let's talk numbers for the audience uh just so we know what we're talking about. So when I um was in the FBI and then I'll get back to that righteous indignation story a uh, comment because I think that is the heart of it, right? Um when I was in the FBI and was asked after the Sandy Hook shooting, which was in December of 2012, to create a program for the FBI that supported the federal government's program, I teamed up with a number of executives from other federal agencies in then-Vice President Biden's office to look for solutions. And we looked at what was working and what wasn't working. And and part of what we uh, – so just as an example, one of the things that, ca- that came out of that was the federal uh, run-hide-fight policy, Uh, for instance, that we support the run-hide-fight for civilians. But when one of the things that I I oversaw at the FBI that we did is um, we thought, hey, is this really just media coverage because it's a school like Sandy Hook? Uh, Some of the people who I worked with said, hey, maybe it's just media covering it and it's making it seem like things are getting worse. And I really felt like the FBI's job was to give that answer. I was the only law enforcement person on that um, on that group of people working um, with Mr. Biden's office at the time, and so we initiated in the FBI some research uh, that still stands today as kind of the seminal research on on these types of active shooter situations. And at the time, so here's the numbers: we studied 14 years, a 14 year period, all kinds of shootings in the United States, and since uh, Columbine we started at Columbine which was in 1999 in the seven years after Columbine the average number of these types of 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 shootings active shooter situations uh, what people commonly refer to as mass killings, the average number of active shooter situations in the United States every year was six incidents but Uh. when when we continued on at the next seven years of the study and I looked at those the average number of incidents was 16 incidents. Mm. So, two, three weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, the FBI came out with its numbers for 2021. So, with the latest numbers available for the FBI, and they counted 61 incidents. Mm. Same methodology. So we have had we've gone from six average year in 2000 to 61 this past year, year before. So wow. that's you know that's part of what we're dealing with is a lot more shootings. And, a, and so what happened, and I remember somebody asked me this years ago, um, several years ago, I think somebody from the New York Times said to me, well, have we gotten kind of numb about this? And I said, yeah, I think we have, because we're beginning to see a shooting every month. We're seeing a shooting every couple of weeks. Well, now there is a shooting like this every week, minimum. So I think it's very difficult for us to um, live with it. I mean, quite frankly, it's very hard for me. I mean, this is what I do for a living, even though I'm retired and I don't get paid. Um, You know, this is what I do for a living. And um, I'm constantly living in this world, and it's very hard. And so when a school shooting occurs, You know, of the shootings that occur, only, I don't say only, like it's a low number, but about 25% of the shootings, 20 to 25% of the shootings that are these types of active shooters occur in schools. The vast majority of them, more than twice as many as that, occur in places of business. So it's, but the thing is that we all, uh, I do have children. I have two children. And I'll tell you, my younger daughter is a middle school teacher. And if you can, as you can imagine, every day she's in school. I think, oh, my God, I hope she it's not the day that she has to face down a shooter to protect her own students. So I think schools are just so vulnerable uh, in our minds, and children are so innocent um, that each time we are so offended by it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. My wife is a uh, um, librarian at a high school. And I always worry about that too. She's she's a librarian at a low income high school, and and uh, with a lot of low income and immigrant students. And I worry about it too uh, all the time. Not only that, but I have daughters that live in Chicago and Denver, and I worry mm-hmm. about them. Um, what should the media not cover this in the way they cover it? Are they sensationalizing it, which uh, does your research show that that they're sensationalizing it, and that's what uh, draws some of these people, motivates them to have their 15 seconds of fame? Uh, should we not cover it the way we cover it?
0: Well, I think I'm glad you asked that question, and I'm glad you asked it that way, because um, – Here's where I'm sorry. There's a little bit of noisy background. I apologize for that. Yeah, um, here's a little good. here here's a little bit of the uh, of I think you know I I spent a few years in the media working in the media and I thought oh, well the media can't possibly can't possibly have anything to do with this right but here's what we um, here's what I found out since the Sandy Hook shooting um, after a few within that same time period that Sandy Hook. Columbine researchers, media researchers, began to say, hey, maybe this is something that is a problem, and maybe, maybe the media coverage is a challenge. So when you say, do they sensationalize it, I don't know that I would use the word sensationalize overall, but I would say there are things that they do in the media that we have, we have since, we as a law enforcement community, uh, we working in this area, have asked the media to stop doing, um, and pr- pr- the primary thing they need to stop doing is showing a subject's picture, showing his weapons, showing his bragging, braggadocious crap, which Mm -hmm. which is not the right nice word to say, but the stuff when they put something online because they want to pretend that they're important, they want to pretend they're somebody, and they want the public to think, oh, who is that person? I think we saw after Columbine that that's exactly what happened. I think the media, the television and movie industry, we, you know, and ourselves were culpable in that we all shared the stories about the two Columbine shooters, and because of that, we made them infamous. And so the researchers um, over the last few years have said, hey, you know, is the media coverage causing a problem? And so in, uh, in 19, um, in 2015, uh, Northeastern Illinois University and Arizona State University Uh, released a study, they found that what we call it the contagion factor, that that when there's coverage, news coverage of a shooting, that the contagion factor can last up to 13 days after a mass shooting. And more frightening than that, while while there was a a subsequent research that was done by uh, uh, University of Western Australia and Old Dominion University, they did this type of research on the contagion factor and they looked at three and a half years of ABC World News Tonight coverage, right? So, kind of a, a kind of a mainstream um, news organization. And they said, and um, they said that their findings um, consistently and positively found that in the four to ten days after a shooting, that that in the four to ten days after a shooting, there were going to be three more shootings. Mm. And and they found that it wasn't like a prediction; it was a fact. And they so and they basically said, you know, and I love this phrase, and I hate this phrase. They said using a back of the envelope, you know, ben, using a back of an envelope calculation, fifty-five percent of the mass shootings that occurred during the time period we studied were explainable by news coverage. Mm.
1: That's incredible. So, and, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say. So I think you know what. I think what the research is showing us is that although we have to cover and we do want the news to cover it, we do want the victims and the survivors' stories to be told, um, the media has to, and I think it definitely recognizes that it has to be circumspect about coverage, how much coverage they give a killer, um, how much coverage they give somebody who appears to, you know, have have been a killer but was was not convicted, right, so a shooter, Um, because the next shooter is looking to see whether or not they can become famous. And and that's, that's on all of us. You know, when we talk about what can you do, that's on all of us to not spread that on our social media pages. You hear about a shooter, you hear about some motive behind a shooter, you see the shooter's picture, don't send it, Don't don't retweet it, don't push it out there on your Facebook page. You're adding unnecessarily to the potential that some other person who – might be on the on the verge of committing this kind of a crime, might say, oh, yeah, I want to be famous, too. So that's an easy thing we can all do. Just don't share.
1: Well, in that vein, uh, is there a responsibility in Hollywood? We've seen, especially with the advent of computer-generated uh, graphics, the ability to, uh, you know, make things bigger and more gruesome. uh, Do they share responsibility? Bill Maher this week uh, posted a thing where uh, somebody in Hollywood said that people need to do more about gun violence and they didn't understand uh, why we weren't doing more. And then he showed 10 clips from movies where, where people not, they didn't go in and shoot somebody. They went in and shot, you know, like Dango and chain, where he shoots 15 people at the same time, those types of right. things, and then at one after another. And I know that they there's been some research that shows that uh, some of these younger shooters uh, have been uh, very much involved in violent video games. Um, is there something that we have to do about that legislatively? And aren't there countries that that control the content that's aimed at young people better than we do?
0: So those are great questions, and I appreciate you asking those. Um, let me just go backwards to tell you that um, that violent video games and video playing, there's been, there's been extensive research to show there's no correlation mm-hmm. the, between somebody who commits violence and somebody who plays those video games. In fact, most of the rest of, uh, of several, several countries in, in the world have, they have many more people who play video games um, by percentage. You know, half of the women in the United States, half of the video players in the United States are women, right. but 99% of the shooters in the United States are men. So it, there's not a correlation between video games and vi- the violence. Now, to broaden it out, though, from what you, your original question about violence, violence in the media, uh, violence in televisions and movies, I mean, I think that, uh, it sounds like you and I are probably pretty close in age and, uh, you know, we grew up with army men and, and, and parents who were in the moor and um, you know, half, there was a point in time when half of the movies that were made in Hollywood were westerns and, and they were, you know, shoot 'em ups, and we moved from, and this is something that, you know, I have this, um, I wrote uh, not, not to sound like I'm doing a blatant plug here and I don't mean to, but I, I wrote this book that was published this past year called Stop the Killing, How to End the mass shooting, um, how to end the mass shooting, uh, uh, you know, the crisis that we have in the United States, Mm -hmm. how to end the mass shooting crisis. And Mm -hmm. and I have a podcast by the same name that's free. I just want you to know people could listen to the podcast for free. Yeah, and we want you to
1: tell people how to access that stuff.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay, I I will do that. But more more important than that is the subject, uh, the conversation, I think. You know, one of the things that I put in my book, um, which I debated about putting in, was a chapter on guns. Because as you said, I teach uh, uh, at the Paul University uh, College of Law in Chicago. I teach a course on the Second Amendment. That's my, that's my area. So I put a chapter in my book on, on guns because I think that it's easy to say, oh, we don't, um, you know, uh, guns are, are new or violence is new, say, in video games. But we grew up in a gun culture. And I think we all have to kind of own that that we do have a very, uh, every, every bad guy on television, every bad guy, every good guy on television or in the movies resolves his problem with violence, it seems. And that was kind of the way we grew up. And we moved from guns, uh, you know, and, and war movies, which I grew up watching, um, uh, to, uh, to space movies, right? And, and, and to the vengeance, vengeful... Uh, I'm going to be the good guy and, and do do bad, do to the bad guy. So most of the movies are they're all called action movies, but there's a tremendous amount of violence in them. And, and I think you're right. I think there's a definitely a there, there's a need to look at and a need to own that. Um, but it also you know they're they're selling movies that we want to watch. So you know we we have to we have to say, we, you know, that's not the kind of movie we want. We don't want a movie with gratuitous violence in it. We we don't want a television show where the good guy shoots a bunch of people in the opening scene. That's, that's, cause that's the violence that we have. And then we, you know, our kids see that too, right? They see that violence is part of the, that, that's the, that's the solution. So that's, I mean, I know I'm kind of waxing philosophical here, but you know, that, that's that's the underpinnings of, of violence and gun violence in, in the United States is that we have kind of created a gun culture, a gun violence culture where you solve the problem with a gun.
1: Well, I, I very much agree with that. First of all, let me say, say, set something straight. I've seen your picture and you can't possibly be nearly as old <laughs> as I am because I'm as old oh, as yeah. dirt. I'm as old as dirt, and I know you're much younger <laughs> than that. But, but beyond that, well, that's that,
0: nice of you to say. But you gave up your age, so I know that we're pretty close. But thank oh, you.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, you know that 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 uh, we grew up, but it was a kinder, gentler time, right? Uh, Matt Dillon wounded a lot of people, you know, and 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 Superman. You know he didn't kill anybody he just captured all the bad guys. Now we've gone to the point where we're just you know everybody you can't just shoot them you gotta obliterate them um, well that's
0: true and you know when you mentioned before about what bill what the uh, what you saw was that bill Maher that you saw the other day yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the the i think it I think that I heard somebody say the other day maybe we should show people what it really looks like at these crime scenes yeah I mean it's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, people who work that. God bless them. Thank them for being able to yeah. to do that.
1: Yeah, it would. It, you know, obviously, it would break people's heart when you can only identify a little girl by her tennis shoes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think any of us, uh, especially those of us that are parents, want to see that sort of thing. It's just, it's just horrible. Um, mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you because uh, I was about to mention your book. What can you tell us, as as civilians, people that do feel helpless, people that are Mm -hmm. not in law enforcement? uh, What what can you tell us? What can we do? What does your book tell us we can do uh, to to help end this crisis in America?
0: Oh, there, and that's you know, Senator, that's a great question, and there's so much that people can do. That's really uh the the and to an- answer your question about the book is certainly available in you know Amazon and audio mm-hmm. audible and but it's also uh um it's a, it's avail I actually paid to have it available for download uh, so that you could read it I mean I paid I'm a publisher published the book but I paid personally to have it so that you could download it if you wanted to read it digitally and it's and also the podcast also is done so that we can empower people with what can you do. It's all, if you can spell my name, which is always a challenge, my uh, website is Um So K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-S-C-H-W-E-I-T. Um, you can, you, can find, uh, you can find all of that on my website because we w- I want to get people to where they can get information. But how can you help? Oh, my gosh, there's so much that you can do yourself. And so let me just give you some examples of what everybody listening could do. They need to, be, um, they need to believe that the information they have about somebody they're concerned about is truthful. And that may seem like an uh, like initial spot of like, what but I can tell you that in research we know that more than half of the people who observed somebody who might have been, uh, be, been creating, uh, who went on to, to, uh, to create, have a, be involved in a violent incident, more than half of the people who observed something never reported it to anybody. In many instances, the information that they might have had, which I can tell you what those kinds of information, that, those kinds of things are, the information that they had, they were the only one potentially who might have observed that particular thing, but they didn't report it. And when you don't report it, and I'll tell you who to report it to, that's kind of why I tried to break it down in the book. When you don't report it, um, a lot of times that's because you say, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get him in trouble. I don't want the police to come and arrest him. I'm sure somebody else will report it. All of those things are, you know, kind of excuses that we do, because we don't want to get involved. We don't want to feel like we're going to get somebody in trouble. It's the same thing about kids not wanting to tell on their friend. But what we know is that 30 to 40 percent of these individuals who commit these kinds of crimes also intend to, and many do, commit suicide. So in most cases, those who are most likely to have information, which are uh, family members, and peers and teachers and coworkers, the most people who are most likely to have the information are also most likely to not report it. And then what happens is somebody who they know commits a horrific crime and then they lose that person, like their son or daughter or their father, or and or, right, that person goes to jail and people who they know are killed. 10% of mass shooters in these circumstances kill a family member first 10%. So you're talking about possibly saving the life of your own family when you don't when you're afraid to to turn somebody in you're afraid to call. So so if I can go on that's like yeah, okay well great what do you call about what do you call about what do you say well so here's who you can call you can call law enforcement You can call and leave it on the FBI's tip line. You can call the school's counselor or principal. You can call a pastor or the rabbi that you know in your neighborhood uh, where you go uh, for services. You can call your boss, the HR person at the company, even if you don't work at the company. Call somebody. Call the school's threat assessment team. Call the school board president and say, I'm concerned about this one of the things that we see is that people, when they do make a call, sometimes they, they wait a day or two. And when they wait a day or two, sometimes they're left holding the bag after somebody's committed a terrible shooting. But what are the kind of things that you're supposed to be looking for? There's not a checklist of things, but there's definitely a number of things that the FBI has said uh, that are, that are some are obvious some are not too obvious examples, but the FBI has provided fantastic guidance on this based not on their theories based on research. Um, if somebody uh, suddenly withdraws from life's patterns, they start uh, stop going to work. They retreat uh, to their own room and they don't communicate with people. They fail to appear for appointments they would normally keep. That is a withdrawal from life's patterns. This person is likely to commit suicide. We might think, but this person, given circumstances or availability of guns, might also commit a mass killing. Recent. Um, let me give you some others that I can think of off the top of my head yeah, please um, any any recent or significant personal loss or humiliation and the, their reaction to that right so you 're talking about breaking up you know somebody who died a divorce a loss of a job something that cuts into their self image they these individuals though also drastically change their appearance sometimes because they want to become somebody else. They either admire or they want to become a different person. You know, nobody when they're five says, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a mass shooter, right? So they have to become that person by studying and researching and thinking, oh, I want to do this. And many times they change their appearance. They might shave their head. They might uh, have a sudden uh, weight change or they might have a poor hygiene that suddenly appears out of nowhere. Um, They also often have almost so many times have an intense interest and fascination with previous shootings. And that is something that they, we have people who have posters up on their walls where they filled in lists of, uh, they printed out from the internet or filled in lists of shootings. They keep a notebook with shootings. They can have a sudden change in social behaviors, such as um, they start using say encrypted language, communicating with other people. They change the way they communicate on social media. Uh, maybe they use, they start using different platforms they wouldn't normally use, right? Um, and the other thing that I think people don't believe when they hear it is obviously if somebody you know has a recent interest in explosives or, or you know starts their inc- and, and increases the amount of target practice they do and acquires a lot of weapons, those seem like oh those seem sure those might be more logical. But these other things are equally relevant, and one of the things that people often discount is in a, in a massive amount. And I, 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 have, I, I mean, I have numbers, but I want to tell you just so you hear the words first. In a massive amount of situation, these individuals directly or indirectly communicate their threat using all kinds of methods of delivery, whether it's by email or whether it's by a note or a text message, and they escalate those in frequency. So they actually say things specifically to people, if they're targeting a particular person, they will post on social media. Oh, you know, Jean looks nice in her green coat as I saw her at the, you know, at the grocery store. They're they're telegraphing to the world that they are going to commit a violent act, and that type of communication is is um, a surprisingly uh, large amount of people. Um, I would say probably 75% of them have a known connection with their attack site. And, and that makes sense if you think about most of these shootings occur in places of business. And then the people who uh, transmit these um, messages to people, um, to, the, to the people around them, as much as 92%, this part, one of the particular FBI studies says 92% of the students convey it to another student. We call it leakage, 92%. But in most cases, that person who it was conveyed to did not tell somebody about it.
1: Well, this leads me to my, you know, my biggest concern, one of my biggest concerns. Um, um, I'm embarrassed about the pusillanimous uh, representation that we have in America, that they've just passed the big bipartisan gun law with the red flag laws, I mean, you know, encouraging, sure. providing resources for red flag laws. You know, as you already pointed out, half of these people won't even say anything. You know, and and please, I know that we'll get we'll get letters and calls from mothers, but you know, Adam Lanz's mother bought him the gun. And my sister, I was the youngest of my family, and my sister used to say about me, if Michael burned down the house, mom would say, "Yeah, but look what a good job he did. He burned it all the way to the <laughs> yeah. ground." You know, mothers I totally get make it. His, right? Moms right. make excuses for for their kids because they, they love them and they always want to see the best in them. So, I, I'm really I'm really embarrassed about this weak law that is this going to do anything? Would this have done anything in Uvalde or Buffalo that we have enhanced, re, uh, enhanced review process of, of, for background checks and for straw purchases and for red flag laws? These really aren't going to do much to stop mass shootings, are they? I, I, well, mean, I, I know that's speculation on your part, but what do you say?
0: No, it, it is. But I think it's important also to consider, uh, Senator, the... Um, You know the whole reality of gun laws and gun violence. A third of the uh, gun violence in the United States is intentional. Uh, Two thirds of it is suicides. Right. So, gun deaths in the United States last year, two thirds of them were by suicides, and the majority of the largest number of suicides, uh, white males in their fifties in the suburb, in the rural, in the rural areas. So, um, there are a lot of uh, firearm deaths that occur in the United States. Uh, that don't have anything to do with mass shootings. Mass shootings are a very small number of shootings that get massive coverage in the news. Mm-hmm. So a uh, firearms uh, package, I mean, I, I firmly believe that anything um, that chips away at um, and, and provides us with other safety um, valves um, can be a potential lifesaver. So I'm not quite ready to um, abandon the red flag law concept yet, um, even though I get it that um, you know, uh, good is the enemy, right? Uh, uh, what is that? Perfect is the enemy of good. Uh, you know, right. there's there are some things that right. people uh, say. Look, this will solve the problem. Um, my my co my co podcaster um, for my podcast uh, Stop the Killing. She mm-hmm. is a Kiwi. She's from New Zealand. She lives in London. And um, when she first met me, she, as you can imagine, she was like, what is wrong with you guys over there? You know, because she doesn't, she doesn't come from a culture of, this is a culture that has a lot of guns and, um, you know, and, and has, uh, has rights that people talk about, um, uh, you know, Second Amendment. We could, we could, you know, discuss that all night and then some. But setting aside, well, you know, what's right and what's wrong and the court's decision and the New York pistol case or Heller and on um, all of that, the bottom line is that we have more guns in the United States, an estimated 400 million guns in the United States, which is more than we have people. Right. So in, in her home territory of New Zealand, you know, when they had a the terrible shooting, they bought guns back um, in Australia when they had a terrible shooting, they bought guns back um, Canada has had a handful of terrible shootings they have made these massive changes in their legislation, uh, in their legislature, in, especially in the last few years. But in the United States, uh, we haven't done that. And the idea of, uh, in Australia, for instance, I think they bought 650,000 weapons back. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the automatic weapons. The United States has an estimated 20 million, uh, automatic uh semi-automatic weapons like the ar-15 style weapons so 20 million buy those back there are not there's not money in the federal budget to buy those back there just isn't and under you know I i hate to sound like a lawyer but you know under the law generally when you take something you have to you give you give somebody recompense and and the majority of gun owners in the united states are uh what they would consider to be law abiding although a huge number of guns in the United States are unsecured, so I would you know that's where you talk about well what kind of laws might be able to be changed. There's a whole package of laws that have come up in this um, in this package that include some things that might um, in, might encourage people, for instance, to secure their guns better, uh, you know might encourage people to get mental health, and I don't know if uh, only time will tell Senator whether all of that is going is going to have a turn the tide on these types of shootings. I mean, these kinds of shootings, mass shootings, those are generally uh, legally purchased weapons. Mm
1: -hmm. Legally
0: purchased weapons.
1: Well, now that we've talked about culture a little bit, why is it that, do you have any sense of why this is a boy thing and not a girl thing? I mean, I assume as an FBI agent, you carried a weapon, but why are Mm -hmm. men yeah, why are men so fascinated with guns uh, more than women? Any idea on that? Because you know what? This is why I never had a gun, Catherine, because I had children, and when I was a little Mm -hmm. boy, my father had a gun. It was a collector's piece, but my parents used to hide it all the time, and I found it every time, because I had more time to look for it than they had to hide it. So... I never had a gun because of all, you know, all the accidental deaths that, that, that uh, y- you know, happened uh, with guns. So I never had one in my house. But, uh, I, but yeah, I, mean, I was I'm, fascinated by it as a boy. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well,
0: definitely, I think, you know, uh, definitely boys, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm no psychiatrist, right? Uh, but there's no question that boys, uh, you know, their anger is, is often more outward Society allows boys to have their anger be outward. You know, our action heroes are primarily men, and um, and that action heroes are people who commit violence on screen. So we we that you know it's kind of the again it kind of really falls back to the culture of how you know how we are in our culture. But you're absolutely right about kids and shootings. You know, and research shows that uh, the risk of homicide is three times higher uh, for uh, when there's a gun in the home. Um, and, and, in when it comes to suicide, it's four times higher if there's a gun in the home, uh, for a child. So, mm. you know, and that even, it goes beyond just as something, you know, I have a, a niece who has three children and after the Oxford high school shooting in, uh, outside of Detroit, which is where I was born, um, she, she's, she's married. She has three kids and she called me. She was very upset about the high school shooting there. She knows what I do for a living. And she said, My friends don't want to send their kids to school and we got into a conversation and she said she told me that she had a babysitter come to her house once who said, I'm really sorry to ask you this, but can I ask you if you have a gun in the house? And um, and my niece said, Megan said, I told her, You should never ever apologize for asking that question. Right. Because and I'll tell you and I said to her, Let me tell you, Megan, you are spot on because a third of the unintended shootings of children occur in somebody else's home yeah. where kids are finding guns. You are spot on when you say you found it every time. Children are very curious and I know I know, shooting after shooting where a parent thought a gun was hidden or thought a gun was locked up and it, ha- it happens and it's so sad. It's so sad.
1: Yeah, it really is and I remember as a kid, as you brought up earlier, you know, I did two things when I was little. I played sports and I carried a toy gun we played Mm -hmm. army for hours we would go out and 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 it usually was uh an hour-long fight over who shot who oh i shot you oh it was only a (laughs) wound oh you got me in the leg you know you could get wounded about 50 times in, in in those games but we always played them and we always uh fancied ourselves i remember standing in front of the mirror as a little boy seven eight years old with my father's gun in my belt drawing it like mm-hmm. I was you know a cowboy or something so mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's sure, because
0: that's what you saw on television right. I mean that's what Marshall Dillon did right. you know that's right. what those good guys did right that's and my father was a, did
1: my father was an army veteran that never talked about his time in the Second World War he never talked mm-hmm. about it and and but yeah you're right I saw it on on TV Well, it seems to me that it's obvious from what you're saying that guns, guns, guns are the problem. So do you have any sense? First of all, I don't understand why we can't bring back the federal ban on assault weapons, which expired in 2004. Isn't it true that during the ban, while the ban was in place, there were less killings with with these assault rifles?
0: You know, I think uh, it's all about which is what I teach in my class. It's all about the numbers and who's counting them and when they're counting them, right? Mm-hmm. And what what weapons are we talking about? So I think I think, and not not to not to sound like I'm ignoring your, your statement, which I clearly just am right now, Senator. But yeah, I think you know, it's well, more. Right. I think there are bigger. I think there are bigger fish to fry. Uh, one of them is that you know uh, you know half of the gun owners in the United States say, yeah, I don't really lock up all my guns. A third of the guns in the United States are unsecured. Uh, we know that so many of those are are suicide deaths. Let's, let's lock our guns up. That's a pretty simple thing to do. Every gun should be locked up. People say, Oh no, I need to reach for it. The other thing that the answer to that is you don't. Um, but I know you think you do, but you don't. But the other thing is that there were uh, during the pandemic, 7 million people bought guns who had never owned a gun before and brought them into homes. Uh, 5 million children in those homes uh, 7 million people who'd never touched a gun before and for some reason thought they needed to suddenly have a gun. And because of that, they, um, I think about the training. I, I did carry a gun for 20 years with the FBI, the training that I went through, the training that law enforcement has, and we still miss a lot. You know, we still, I think people who don't, uh, underst- who don't uh, touch a gun and they shoot maybe once in a while at a piece of paper in a building with a controlled environment, have no idea how their adrenaline is going to fly. And when you talk about carrying a gun and pulling it out and firing at somebody, there is ample evidence to show that there, you are more likely to interrupt a shooting without having a gun in your hand than you are with having a gun in your hand. There's more research that shows that. But in addition to that, if you, if you carry a gun and you choose to fire it, if you step out and fire that gun, certain things are going to happen. One is, the police are going to approach and not know that you're a good guy. you second, you have no legal authority to fire that gun on the street. So you could fire that gun on the street, but with your adrenaline running, the chance that you're going to hit your mark is pretty slim. but the chance that you might hit somebody else and kill an innocent person much higher. So yeah. that whole the, it's much riskier than people think I think about in addition to the fact that you probably don't know how to secure that gun, you probably leave it under your seat in your car or in your glove box. You probably leave it unsecured on your dresser or on top of your refrigerator, which is a very common place for people to leave their guns that are, you know, uh, unsecured and loaded where anybody can get to them, including the neighbor's kids who come over because they're trying to climb up to get the chips in the cupboard over it. So, I mean that You know, secure your guns. Don't carry a gun if you don't think you know what you're doing. And Don't think you're going to take your gun with you and you're going to save everybody else because it doesn't happen. It's more likely well, you're going to get shot.
1: Well, let's talk about that uh, for a minute, about these myths that if uh, you ban certain weapons, only bad guys will have guns. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Adam Lanza had no criminal record. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think the shooter in Uvalde had a criminal record. I'm not sure. You're about right. the In B- Buffalo. So, you know, it seems to me to be a catch-22 that they say, you know, only bad guys will have guns because all these guys are good guys until they shoot somebody, and then they're bad guys. They're, they're never, You're correct,
0: Senator. They're never That's the guys that, point. you know. And...
1: Um, uh, there was a guy named Adam Langford who did a study that showed that of yep. 433 mass shootings, 433 that he researched, only 12 were. Was there an intervention with uh, a good guy with a gun? Uh, we saw. Yeah, Adam. You know that they. The I good love Adam. Go
0: in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah,
1: go ahead. We saw in Uvalde. That the good guys didn't go in because, uh, you know, they were held back by somebody. So, uh, yeah, you know, these these myths, I think we need to do something to, uh, you know, uh, debunk them, don't you?
0: Well, there's definitely – actually, Adam uh, Lankford is a friend of mine, so I I didn't mean to speak over you, Senator. Um, No, that's okay. And I I apologize for doing so. Um, Adam is very wise. uh, He's done a lot of research, and we actually have him on in two of our podcasts this season because of that. He is so knowledgeable. And and one of the – there are several myths that that I constantly feel like I'm debunking, and one of those is that that constantly there will be somebody else – who has a gun, who's going to save the day, because that is what we see in television and movies. Um, But what we know in reality is that the original research that I did with the FBI, um, our team did with the FBI, that we studied 160 incidents of of these types of active shooters, and in 21 of those, which would be 13 percent, in 21 of those, the situation ended after an unarmed civilian safe, safely and successfully restrained the shooter. Mm-hmm. So, in 13% of the incidents, now, how many of those did an armed good guy with a gun? Uh, none. There were there was there were two situations where there was an armed person off duty, off duty, you know, security guards, people who were trained. Now, since uh, nine, since 2000, there have been, I think. Four maybe three or four instances where somebody who was a citizen with a valid firearms license interfered, intercepted, tried to shoot at, and I think there have been a couple of uh, of a couple of those where a shooter one or two where a shooter was killed by an armed civilian um, out of hundreds out of hundreds of situations so I think that i 'm not saying things don 't happen uh, and and that every life saved is great. But I think if you're relying on that rule, another myth that I hear all the time is, Oh, all these no gun zones, that's where all the deaths occur. That's not true. I mean, when you look at the uh, FBI research on these types of shootings, the largest number of them occur in California, Florida, and Texas our three largest States, California, Florida, and Texas. That's where they occur. So it's not a question of that.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, I certainly was taught, I grew up in a bad neighborhood in North New Jersey, and I was always taught that the most important weapon that you can have is your brain. And I was involved mm-hmm. in two gun incidents. I, I, I didn't carry a gun, but I was involved in two gun incidences on Capitol Hill, in which, wow. which both resulted in arrests. The first incident. I called the police and undercover police officers responded to the scene and found a guy trying to break into our apartment building uh, with a gun. Uh, And in the second incident, I lived in what we used to call English basement apartments in Washington. Uh, Mm You go down in the basement of a house and two guys with a gun followed me to the door and asked me for a glass of water. And I turned around and I said, oh, I'll I'll, I'll get you glass of water, guys. But uh, I live with three firemen who work on the night shift and you guys are going to have to wait here because I don't want to wake them up. And in that instant that they paused to think about that, I got in the door and slammed the door behind me and called the police. So <laughs> the best thing you can do, right, is use your... Is, is use your head. And, you know, right. I, I think what would have happened if I would have pulled out a gun? They probably would have shot me before I could have figured out how to get the safety off and, and shoot them. But when I said, look, I live with uh, a bunch of, 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 you know, men, uh, they hesitated long enough for me to get in the door. And actually, this is a true story that when I moved out of that apartment, the resident manager quit. She said, I'm not going to be in this place anymore because this is the only guy that's <laughs> ever done anything, you know? And and, and uh, so, yeah, thinking is more important than, than shooting, I think. Well, we're starting well, let to me run tell you. Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was go just going to say, you know, it's important to remember that these incidents, 70% of them end in five minutes or less, half of oh. those in two minutes or less. So you just have to keep yourself safe for a very short amount of time, a couple of minutes. And, you know, it's more important for you to learn how to run and run, hide, fight than it is for you to do any of those other things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I got to just add that I was amazed At the bravery of law enforcement and one of those incidents is where they took the gun away from the guy a police officer undercover police officer engaged him and he drew the gun on the cop and stuck it right in his face and the cop opened up his jacket and he had a badge and a gun and he said it's not gonna happen for you tonight pal and the guy hit him in the head and ran and of course there were other police officers there and they they subdued the guy but uh, but, yeah, it, it seems to me that, you know, you're better trying to think about things and think about your surroundings and think about where you are and what's going on. Uh, and we mm-hmm. were always taught that. We were always taught that as kids. You know, we lived in a we lived in a tough neighborhood, in a tough city. And uh, but mm-hmm. of course, you know, even in North New Jersey, when I was a kid, you were more likely to solve a dispute with a fist fight than you were to pull a gun and shoot somebody. I don't think that happens anymore. I think that, you know, people pull pull guns much too quickly. Well we're running Yeah we have a time, lot more
0: miners carrying guns too sir.
1: A lot more miners. I mean it's incredible and it's a false sense of empowerment. You know I think mm-hmm. these these young people that carry guns in bad neighborhoods think that it, it empowers them, and it doesn't. It really puts them in danger. Uh, whether mm-hmm. they, even if they use the gun, it puts them in danger. You know what good does it do you to spend the rest of your or a great part of your life in jail from using? Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's crazy that we're shooting each other over tennis shoes and things like that. But we're running out of time here. And one, I want you to again tell people how they can get a copy of your book, uh, and, and uh, also to tell them how they can listen to your uh, podcast. Again, the book is entitled Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis, and please tell us how we can get a copy of that, and how we can listen to your podcast.
0: The podcast is also called Stop the Killing. If you search Stop the Killing and my last name, S-C-H-W-E-I-T, you can find the podcast, which is free to listen to. We're in our second season. It's filled with all kinds of ideas on what you can do to help stop the killing in your own neighborhood. And uh, the book itself and the podcast uh, are available. You can touch base on my website, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, which is my first name, uh, com. No period in between. Schweit dot com, and I appreciate you mentioning that, Senator. Go go DC statehood. That's what I have to yeah. say to, oh, to, thank to close you. out my position. Firm believer in little representation well, wouldn't hurt.
1: Well, you know what? It, it wouldn't if you believe because we're we have the, some of the toughest gun laws in the country. Uh, we have uh, so if you believe that um, you, you know we should have tighter gun laws. Uh, electing two senators and a, and a representative from the District of Columbia to have a vote uh, would go a long way in, in, in helping make that that happen. And uh, mm-hmm. let me also just tell you that as an adjunct professor at, at DePaul, uh, when I came out there to lecture about statehood, I was stunned by how much the students knew about it. Uh, they were just, you know, you're lucky to teach a lot of bright, engaged uh, young people because they, 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 they really amazed me. So um, Catherine Schweig, thank you so much for being on our show. This is so important. We're going to have to have you back sometime when my co-host is with us so we can continue the conversation. But as we end the show, is there anything that you want to add that, that I didn't ask you?
0: You know, I would just say that it's important that people understand that you can't be killed if you're not there, so secure your guns, teach your children to run just like you teach them to run from a bad guy who drives up next to him on the street. you right. know run hide fight and secure your guns. don't give up because we are we are going to beat this. We are going to find a way to stop the killing
1: Well, you know what that's a great way to end the show, and we always end the show with a song. We dedicate it to, the, to our guests. And tonight, here's one of our hometown uh, heroes, uh, Marvin Gaye, with What's Going On. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, my favorite. Catherine Thank you, wow. sir. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
0: representation in the capital of this nation, 100 years of exploitation, give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.